Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to discuss part two of our autonomic nervous system discussion. If you haven't tuned into part one, I encourage you to go back and do so. We went through the overview of the autonomic nervous system, both sympathetic, parasympathetic, uh, the different types of receptors that we would have there, the G protein, a couple of receptors, GQ, GS, GI, the different responses we're going to have with the different adrenergic receptors, alpha, beta, um, et cetera. And if you haven't tuned into that, I encourage you to go back and do so because now today we want to discuss the medications that we commonly are going to give in the operating room, um, as well as the different critical care aspects of the hospital and what these drugs are going to do, whether they're an agonist and antagonist, these different receptors. So let's just uh, take it away here, Tanner. We're going to start with the catecholamines that we're going to give both the synthetic and the natural catecholamines, which are going to be epinephrine, norepinephrine dopamine, et cetera. So Tanner, you just want to take us away here? Like Cole mentioned, if you haven't listened to part one, make sure you go back and listen to that. We briefly touch on several of these as far as where they're created in the body and more specifically how they're used and how they function with the different neurons and the preganglionic neurons and the postganglionic neuron and those types of things. So uh, let's jump right into epinephrine. Epinephrine is going to bind to beta one and beta two as well as alpha one and alpha two. So think of epinephrine as just like the top dog. It's going to work with all of the adrenergic receptors. As a result, you're going to see bronchodilation due to the beta two effects. So that's why if you have a really, really bad bronchospasm that you would consider giving epi, it will also increase your heart rate due to the beta one stimulation, increase SVR and blood pressure due to the alpha one stimulation. And then you'll also see a slight inhibition of the amount of vasoconstriction simply because of the alpha two stimulation, the beta one and alpha one are going to obviously outweigh the alpha two effects, but just know that there is a slight inhibition there with the alpha two stimulation as well. And then also know that the beta two is going to cause slight vasodilation. Again, that beta one and alpha one are going to be more significant than that beta two vasodilation effect you'll see. At lower doses, epinephrine is going to favor your beta receptors. And then remember that as that dose will increase, it will switch to more of your alpha receptors. The next one we're gonna talk about is norepinephrine. So norepinephrine will stimulate beta one as well as alpha one and alpha two. So the only one that norepi is not going to be stimulating is going to be your beta two. At low dose, again, remember that at lower doses with epi, you saw more beta than alpha. With norepinephrine at low dose, you'll see more beta one stimulation, and that will increase your heart rate and increase your contractility. Similarly to epinephrine, as that dose increases, you're going to see more alpha effects, so more alpha one and alpha two. And so you'll see more vasoconstriction, and then that will hinder the amount of your heart rate increasing again, due to the bare receptor reflex. We talked about that last episode. This is simply due to the fact that when you have an increase in your blood pressure, you're going to see a decrease in your heart rate. 
times that we'll give norepinephrine, it's a very common presser that you'll use in the ICU. Often you'll use this also in your cardiac cases, and it's a really appropriate medication to use for most of your shock states. The exception here would be your cardiogenic shock. This is when you've got a bad pump. And so you don't want to increase your afterload due to the alpha one stimulation there. You just have a bad pump with your cardiogenic shock going against an increased afterload is just going to worsen your cardiogenic shock. So that would be something to consider here. you also, we all know this, but just make sure you're very careful when you're infusing norepinephrine through a peripheral IV. If this would infiltrate, then the necrosis to the local tissue there would be very detrimental. So this is something that you want to be very, very sure that you have good access when you're giving norepinephrine. Next one we want to talk about is dopamine. And this is often in terms of when I've used it in anesthesia has been during open heart cases. If you're doing any type of cardiac surgeries or procedures. And again, you can use norepi. I often give norepi in those cardiac cases where you're trying to enhance that pump. Typically it's not long-term if your patient's going to be going back to the ICU, et cetera. I know a lot of the surgeons don't want you to use norepi as the first line. They'd rather you use dobutamine, et cetera. Um, Some people like dopamine, Um, just kind of preference of the surgeon that you're going to be dealing with. Um, But that's kind of why Tanner was alluding alluding to the fact that you don't necessarily give norepi as your number one pressure in the cardiogenic shock, um, but you typically do in the other shocks. Uh, But in terms of dopamine though, like I said, it's typically used, at least from my experience, I've given it a lot during my open heart cases when you're coming off a pump. And the main reason is it's kind of known as the quote, renal protection of these type of drugs that we give for pressure support. And that's because at lower doses, it causes renal vasodilation. And so this is going to increase blood flow to the kidneys. Whereas as Tanner mentioned, you know, with long-term norepinephrine drips, it it could potentially uh, over time constrict the amount of blood flow that's getting to the kidneys and cause some damage there. Um, Whereas the theory is then that dopamine would not cause quite a severe of a drop in perfusion to the cells of the, the kidneys and actually protect them longer. We do have dopamine receptors throughout our body. We didn't really discuss this much in the part one of our discussion. For the sake of time, we're not really going to go into it too much um, in terms of the actual specific dopamine receptors. But I do want to say that obviously dopamine is going to bind to those receptors. But over time, as you increase the dopamine dose that you're using, you're going to start to have the beta one and the alpha one receptors being stimulated. So at medium doses, you're going to have beta one receptors start to become into effect here. And you're going to start to see that increase in heart rate and increase in contractility. And then as you increase to even higher doses of dopamine, you're going to start to see the alpha one being stimulated. And that's where you can have that constriction of those blood vessels. So those are the three main catecholamines. Now you also have synthetic catecholamines and the synthetic ones that we're going to talk about here. The first one is isoproteranol, and this is going to be a commonly referred to as the chemical pacemaker uh, of the heart that we can give. And it's because it stimulates both beta one and beta two receptors. So it's going to cause an increase in heart rate, increase in contractility due to that beta one, but then it's also going to cause some bronchodilation because of that beta two, along with some vasodilation as well. And just relaxation of the uterus, the mesentery, the gallbladder, et cetera. Um, this is often used in heart transplant patients um, because their hearts are going to be denervated and will be unresponsive to any manipulation of that SA node, um, for example, via atropine. 
So atropine is going to work on that vagus nerve that's going to be trying to stimulate that uh, muscarinic 2 receptor in the right atrium at that SA node. And atropine, as we all know, will inhibit that effect and inhibit the muscarinic 2 from being stimulated, which will then have a rise in the balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic, which causes that increase in heart rate. But in this case, the heart transplanted patient is going to be disconnected, if you will, from those nerves coming in and binding to the receptors there in the heart. And so we're not going to be able to manipulate the vagus nerve, go into that muscarinic 2 receptor. So instead of getting atropine or ephedrine, which we'll talk about here in a little bit to manipulate the heart rate, the best thing to give here is isoproteranol because it's just a direct chemical pacemaker for the heart then that's going to directly stimulate those beta-1 receptors to increase. Next, let's talk about our all-time favorite in anesthesia, phenylephrine. Phenylephrine is going to be specific for your alpha-1 receptor. This is going to cause an increase in your blood pressure, increase in your SVR. So remember last episode, we talked about the bare receptor reflex. So this is where you have a decrease in your heart rate due to that increase in your blood pressure, SVR. So remember that you will see this as you give the phenylephrine and you stimulate those alpha-1 receptors, you can also see an associated decrease in the heart rate. This is nice when you want to increase your afterload. Also, if you have a patient that is tachycardic and also hypotensive, this is nice because again, it will increase your blood pressure and simultaneously decrease your heart rate as long as those baroreceptor reflexes are intact. Ephedrine, this is another one that we should talk about, and this will act, remember, with both direct and indirect stimulation of both alpha and beta receptors. It will stimulate more of your natural catecholamines to bind to these alpha and beta receptors. So again, remember that if you have a patient that is depleted in their endogenous catecholamines, Ephedrine is not going to be as effective. So think of a septic patient or a heart transplant patient where you have these depletion of the catecholamines. Again, ephedrine will not be as effective simply because the indirect stimulation is not going to be effective when you don't have these catecholamines to release. This will increase both your heart rate and your SVR. So it's very useful for a patient that is hypotensive and maybe bradycardic. When we talked about Neo, that was helpful when they had a faster heart rate. Again, these are not real hard and fast rules, but just something that's nice about the profile of these different drugs that uh, you will see also an increase in your heart rate and in your blood pressure with the ephedrine. Vasopressin, this is naturally made in your hypothalamus and stored in your posterior pituitary gland. This is something that we can also give to the patient when we have severe hypotension or if the patient has ACE inhibitors or ARBs in their medication list. This is something that should be red flag immediately on your mind. Vasopressin as the ACE inhibitors and ARBs will act with the RAS system. If you're having hypotension and you are unable to correct that with your Neo or whatever you want to use first line, make sure you move quickly to the vasopressin. Remember that vasopressin will cause vasoconstriction simply due to the vasopressin 1 receptors. Vasopressin 2 receptors will cause water to be reabsorbed in the collecting ducts of the kidney. So you'll see an increase in your circulating volume simply because of these V2 receptors. And then the V1 will cause the direct vasoconstriction. Again, 
keep this in mind when you have a patient on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, this is going to be your pressure of choice. If their hypotension is non-responsive, uh, again, this is because you need to interfere with that RAS system. Debutamine, this is a beta agonist that causes increased heart rate and contractility. So this is something that is very good for patients with cardiogenic shock, or this is something that you also might want to think about if you have like a aortic cross clamp on a patient where you're going to increase your SVR uh, drastically in a case, then you're going to have a more difficult time pumping against that increased SVR. Dabutamine is a nice drug because it will increase your heart rate, increase your contractility, and you'll also see a little bit of vasodilation there too. So next, let's talk about selective beta-2 agonist. So this would be an example of albuterol. And what's going to happen here is when you're selectively targeting beta-2, rather than giving a medication that's going to agonize both the beta-1 and beta-2 receptors, this beta-2 specific medication, such as albuterol, is going to cause mainly bronchodilation with the limited effects then at the heart. And so these type of meds are given mainly when you have somebody with like a respiratory complication, um, COPD, asthma, et cetera, where you're going to be wanting to give a bronchodilator um, without really causing too much effect on the heart. Keep in mind though, that the other side effects that are going to be caused by stimulating beta-2 receptors, you're also going to have a decrease in potassium. You're going to have some vasodilation, increased glucose, increased insulin. We can also give this when you have a lady that is coming in and they're in preterm labor and you want to delay that preterm labor um, just to give the baby more time to develop and to grow, um, et cetera, whatever the reason may be for delaying it. Um, but we give a beta-2 agonist specifically because it relaxes the uterus and prevents it from contracting and pushing the patient into labor. You can also give alpha-2 agonist. Uh, again, we talked about this a little bit in our first discussion, but Presidex and Clonidine are two great examples of alpha-2 agonist. Uh, and they will lower your blood pressure um, due to inhibiting that norepinephrine being released from those uh, nerve terminals. And it results in vasodilation because we don't have as much norepinephrine going across and binding to those alpha-1 receptors, causing that constriction. Um, it'll also cause some sedative effects as well. Another big common symptom we see with this is going to be bradycardia. I think we've all seen that before when you use Presidex. Um, you should be very careful with how much uh, you dose a patient uh, just because it can cause some pretty severe bradycardia on top of lowering the blood pressure. Another uh, nice thing about these drugs is it has a limited effect on the respiratory drive, uh, which makes it very nice for the sedative drugs. So I typically like to use these uh, drugs on my patients who I get back to the operating room. They're pretty revved up. Their heart rate's pretty high. Um, it's kind of nice to give an even a MAC case scenario when you have a patient that um, is going to struggle with, you know, COPD, asthma, et cetera, and you don't want to just blast them with propofol if they have a bunch of sleep apnea. Um, you can you can work in a little bit of Presidex, and it's a great drug for that standpoint. Next, let's talk about some alpha antagonists. So you can either have a specific alpha one antagonist a specific alpha-2 antagonist, or you can have just an all-encompassing alpha-1 and alpha-2 antagonist. So let's talk about first just the alpha-1 selective ones. So alpha-1 selective antagonists usually end in the suffix osin, so O-S-I-N. So an example of this would be prezosin. 
And this is a selective alpha-1 blocker. And typically a common symptom you're going to see here is vasodilation. And this is, again, due to the fact that if alpha-1 typically causes vasoconstriction, if we're blocking that, we're going to see that dilating effect and it'll decrease the SVR. We often see this in patients that have benign prostatic hypertrophy. Um, they, they typically are on these type of medications for that reason. Um, I rarely see a patient that is on one of these meds that doesn't have uh, BPH. Yohimbin is a, an example of a alpha-2 selective um, antagonist. So now we're talking about the alpha-2 side of things. So if you remember alpha-2, when it's stimulated, it's going to inhibit the release of norepinephrine from the nerve terminal. But in this case, if we're blocking that, then more norepinephrine is going to be released from those nerve terminals. And so you're going to see a rise in blood pressure and a rise in heart rate as that norepinephrine stimulates both those alpha-1 receptors and those beta-1 receptors to um, cause that effect. In terms of both alpha-1 and alpha-2 blockers, um, you have both a non-competitive and a competitive version um, of these two medications. And the first one that is a non-competitive antagonist is going to be phenoxbenzamine. What this does is it blocks alpha-1, which is going to result in that vasodilation we spoke about, but it also blocks alpha-2. And because alpha-2 is also blocked, there's going to be more epinephrine being released. So it kind of contraindicates here blocking the alpha-1. So as a result, though, you're going to see not quite as much of a rise in, in vasoconstriction because those two are combating each other. But what you're really going to see is a rise in heart rate. So this medication blocking the alpha-2 more at the heart is going to allow more of that norepinephrine to be released and bind to those beta-1 receptors and cause increased heart rate. Whereas that alpha-1 and that alpha-2 blockade are going to kind of balance each other out. Um, again, this is a non-competitive antagonist, meaning once it's there, we can't really give a drug that's going to counteract it. So it's a little bit harder to reverse the effects of, whereas we can give another antagonist of both alpha-1 and alpha-2, and that's phentalamine. This is a competitive antagonist of these. Um, it does the similar side effects and symptoms that we'll see for the phenoxbenzamine, but basically here we can reverse this. That's the nice thing about it. And it's shorter acting. The last thing that we want to talk about are beta blockers. Beta blockers are used to decrease the strain on the heart. They will do this by decreasing the heart rate or the contractility, which will lower the oxygen demand of the heart tissue. You can think of these as cardiac protective. The result here then will be beta blockers are typically used in patients with CAD. You can see it with CHF as well, or uh, most commonly, probably hypertension. We'll block your beta-1 and beta-2 receptors, or it can be selective for beta-1 or non-selective for, again, just both beta-1 and beta-2. They'll end with the suffix OL, OL, so metoprolol, propanolol. You know the typical OL, OL, labetalol, esmolol. Um, those will be the giveaway for your beta blockers. A little trick to help remember if it's going to be selective or if it's going to be non-selective, the first half of the alphabet, if it starts with the first half of the alphabet, it's going to be selective. And if it's going to be the second half of the alphabet, it's going to be non-selective. There are uh, two exceptions and that's metoprolol and carvedilol. So metoprolol is selective and then carvedilol is non-selective. Other than that, uh, it's it's a real cheap and easy trick just to remember which ones are selective and non-selective. Again, exceptions, metoprolol and carvedilol. 
Beta one selective drugs will decrease your heart rate and contractility. Just again, think about what your beta one is doing. Non-selective beta blockers will also have a bronchoconstriction component to them and some vasoconstriction effects just because of inhibiting the beta two and beta one receptors. There's a couple specifics that you should make sure you understand their profile just so you have a better understanding of why maybe you would use some in different situations other than others. You should remember that lobetalol and carvedilol will have alpha and beta blocking effects. Many times we go right to lobetalol when we're treating high blood pressure. And again, this is simply because it also will have that alpha blocking effect as well. Esmolol is going to be a very fast on and off, and this is because it's metabolized by the plasma esterases. And so you can see this if you're giving esmolol for maybe just the sympathetic stimulation of laryngoscopy or something like that. Esmolol is nice in this situation because you're not going to be dealing with long-term effects of this beta blockade. If you have an increased dose or overdose of beta blocker, then you'll see severe hypotension. You'll see bradycardia from the blocking of that beta one. And you could also see some bronchoconstriction if it's a non-selective beta blocker. You should know that your treatment for this is going to include cardiac pacing. We mentioned earlier that isoproteranol is a good pacemaker of the heart. So you could give isoproteranol, glucagon, calcium. You can give phosphodiesterase 3 inhibitors such as milrinone or epinephrine would also be in the algorithm as far as managing a beta blocker overdose. Phosphodiesterase is the enzyme that breaks down cyclic AMP. So I mentioned milrinone just a second ago. And if we give a phosphodiesterase 3 inhibitor, such as milrinone, so this means that more cyclic AMP is going to remain in the cell. This will lead to uh, increased heart rate, but more importantly, increased contractility, which is going to be the uh, main thing that we're desiring there with someone that is in heart failure. That wraps up our episode for the specific meds that we give with dealing with the ANS. Remember, if you haven't listened to our last episode where we talk about the specific physiology of the ANS, make sure you go back and listen to that first. This hopefully is just a brief rundown. And if it's been a while since you've gone through the different mechanism of actions of these different drugs, hopefully this is a good refresher. If you're going through this for the first time, hopefully this makes it uh, just simple and very straightforward when you're thinking about what makes one medication different or more advantageous than another when you're managing these patients uh, intraoperatively. <laughs>